Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. The three most beautiful and life-giving words I know are the last that Jesus uttered when he said, It is finished. I love those words because with them, Jesus declared that he had fulfilled God's ancient promise to redeem a people for himself and thereby restore God's righteous reign to the earth, to fill the earth with his glory, which is what God always intended to do. Jesus uttered those three words with his final gasp as he died on that ugly cross that has become so beautiful to us who are his. Isn't that why we put crosses in our churches? We hang them on our walls at home. Many of you are wearing cross jewelry today. Some of us may have cross tattoos because we know that the cross is central to our hope in Christ. But I wonder sometimes if some of us become so familiar with the cross that we have forgotten or worse yet, have never really understood what happened there. And so this morning, before we unpack the story of the cross in John chapter 19, I want to consider what our king was doing on that cross in the first place. For only then can we understood or understand those three words, it is finished. But to do this, we need to remember the story that we find ourselves in. The story that begins with the God who was there before there was anything else, who created all things, and ultimately us in His image, that we might flourish in a priority relationship with God that would allow us to flourish in our relationships with ourselves, one another, and the rest of creation, and thereby fill the earth with God's glory as His reflectors. Adam and Eve flourished under their creator king in Eden until following the evil one, they rebelled against God, making themselves and us, their descendants, worthy of God's wrath. Having alienated ourselves from the one in whom we live and move and have our being, we became alienated from ourselves, from one another, and from the rest of creation so that neither we nor our world are what we were meant to be. Utterly lost and without hope if it weren't for God's redeeming promise in Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 in a promise that God gave immediately after Adam and Eve sinned but immediately before he judged them saying to them, Actually, speaking to the servant, I should say, to, to, the, to, the, to the serpent in Genesis 3, cursed are you above all livestock, for he had tempted 
Adam and Eve to rebel against him. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that is war, between you, devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. But get this, he, a particular male offspring, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, devil, though you will strike his heel. Theologians refer to this as the proto-evangelium. Want to say that and speak some Latin today? Try it. Proto-evangelium. There, you're Latin speakers. It's a cool Latin phrase that means the first telling of the gospel. But notice that this first telling of the gospel points to a future violent decisive battle between God's champion or Messiah to come and the evil one who had usurped God's kingdom in Eden. But in this battle, we see that God's champion, whom we see in the Old Testament, would also rule as king over God's kingdom, would utterly crush or destroy, crush the head or utterly vanquish the serpent in order to reestablish God's righteous reign upon the earth and thereby fill the earth with God's glory. And who is our champion? He is Jesus. The Old Testament and the Gospels make it clear He is Jesus of Nazareth who launched His public ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 by saying this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And when Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, his Jewish audience would have understood him to be referring to the time between the ancient promise in Genesis 3.15 to restore God's kingdom to the earth and the moment this kingdom restoration had finally begun. That's why Jesus goes on to say, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come because I, the promised king of God's kingdom, have come. Calling my people to forsake the kingdoms of this world, to follow me into the kingdom I will inaugurate by destroying the works of the devil, conquer the power of sin, and making all things new. And we know this is what Jesus meant because of his use of the word gospel. A word that the people in Jesus' day understood quite a bit differently than we do today. The truth is we have sanitized and Sunday schoolized the word gospel into a warm and fuzzy word. When in Jesus' day, the word gospel, though it did mean good news, it referred to the violent overthrow of one king and kingdom by another. Specifically, The gospel was proclaimed by a herald or a runner who would run in front of a king and or his conquering generals in a victory parade to the cheers of the people of his country. And behind the king and his generals who had conquered another king and his generals would be those conquered kings and generals in chains or in cages going to their death. And a herald would run out in front of this procession proclaiming the good news, the gospel, that our king has vanquished the enemy king and we have gained the spoils. 
That was the gospel. That's what the word gospel meant, which means that when Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, he was calling them to believe the good news that according to the ancient promise, he, God's Messiah, had come to conquer evil, sin, and death. And therefore, the one who had usurped God's kingdom in Eden in order to reestablish God's righteous reign upon the earth. So we shouldn't be surprised as we see Jesus vanquishing demons throughout his public ministry. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 29, this is very, very helpful. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met Jesus coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, the demons cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Notice two things. Notice first that these demons recognized the Son of God. They knew who he was. They knew that he had made them, that they had rebelled against him, and that he would judge them for it. Notice also, they knew that there was a specific time at which their judgment would take place. They just didn't realize the time had come. They were well aware of the promise of Genesis 3.15, that their demise was certain. But we see in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 and elsewhere, this demise of the evil one and his demons would come ultimately at the cross where Jesus, the God-man, Savior, King, would complete a life of perfect obedience to the Father by vanquishing the devil and his clan, ironically, through the devil's violence against him there at the cross. So why was our king on that cross? Oh, you, you say, that's easy to pay for my sins, to get me out of hell and get me into heaven, and you'd be right. But if you think that's all that happened there, then you're missing the heart of the gospel, which is more about God than it is about us, about God taking back what is His for His glory that leads to our best. As He conquered the power of sin, death, and the devil to restore God's righteous reign to the earth through us, his kingdom people he purchased there. That we who are his might flourish in and under him as king as we announce and embody his restored kingdom that has come, that is coming. And aren't you glad it will one day fill the earth? Isn't this what Paul is getting at in Colossians chapter 2? Verses 13 and 15, I love this passage. And you who were dead in your trespasses, passage, passage, easy for me to say, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now we want to stop there, and, and, and we, we're excited about the fact that he, well, actually, let's go forward. We don't want to quite stop there. Sorry, Jeff. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, we usually stop there and say, yes, my sins have been nailed to the cross so that I am forgiven, so that I can be with God forever. And we don't go to verse 15 where Paul explains why this happened. He disarmed by canceling our sin. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Who's that? 
the devil and his demons, the ones who usurped God's kingdom in the garden. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by, say that word with me, triumphing over them in Christ at the cross. In other words, our king went to the cross not merely to get us out of hell and into heaven, but as Paul says in Colossians 1, God sent Jesus to the cross and Jesus voluntarily went to the cross to deliver us from the dominion or kingdom of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son, which includes heaven to be sure. But how many of you know that God's kingdom is already here spiritually, that Christ actually brought his kingdom, that he meant it when he said the kingdom of God is at hand? But if that's true, then our kingdom life has already begun and it will continue to progress and ultimately culminate as we see in Revelation 21 and 2 Peter 3 in a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. Only righteousness can dwell there, which is why praise be to God at the cross. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. At the cross, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What? Can that possibly be true? Yes, this is the good news of the gospel, what many have called the great exchange, where at the cross, Jesus gets our sins and we get his righteousness. Do you hear that? At the cross, Jesus took our sins and canceled them so that God could then assign to us or impute to us the very righteousness of Christ in order to make us worthy to enter and enjoy God's righteous kingdom, Jesus inaugurated there. Crucified, as we see in John chapter 19, verses 16 and 18, between two criminals. It would have been about 9 a.m. after Jesus had been up all night. They'd kept Jesus up all night, falsely accusing him, mocking him, and beating him beyond recognition. Jeff, if you could flip there to John chapter 19, it'd be awesome. We read in verse 16, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own heavy, solid wood cross that would have crushed his beaten and bloody back and shoulders. But he had to drag that cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified the God-man, Savior, King. Driving iron spikes into his hands and his feet in order to secure him to the cross. And then lifting him up for all to watch him suffer in agony for the next six hours until his death. And with him, we read, there were two others Matthew tells us they were convicted criminals, crucified one on either side of Jesus. A deep irony, since Jesus wasn't guilty like these men and therefore didn't deserve to be there. 
But if at the cross, the God-man, Savior, King, was inaugurating God's righteous kingdom by canceling sin and death and evil to purchase a kingdom people for himself, then just as Isaiah 53, 12 predicted, among transgressors is exactly where we would expect to find Jesus breaking the power of our transgressions. We read in verse 19, that Pilate, perhaps retaliating against the Jewish elite who had suggested they were more loyal to Caesar than he was, wrote an inscription and put it on the top of the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He got it right. But this infuriated the Jewish elite who read this inscription, we read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek, so that everyone who passed by could read it. So the chief priest, verse 21, of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather say this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Remember, the religious elite had rejected Jesus' claims to be God's Messiah because Jesus announced and embodied a kingdom focused on him, not them. So they say, hey, Pilate, edit, control, Z, go backwards, clean this thing up. But Pilate answered, nope, what I have written, I have written. I love how God in his sovereignty guaranteed that whatever was going on in Pontius Pilate's mind, he guaranteed that everyone would see who Jesus was as he was crucified that day our King, God's promised Messiah. If you're like me, at this point you might find yourself cheering for Pilate, but hissing at the religious elite for rejecting him. You might be thinking that that if you had been there, you would have said, no, this is Jesus, our Savior. He's the King. He's the Messiah. We need to trust him. Forgetting as Jesus reminded us back in John chapter 6, And apart from God's invading grace, none of us can see who Jesus truly is and respond to him in faith. Which means that apart from God's grace, you and I would have been right there alongside the others, rejecting Jesus, right alongside the Jews or perhaps the Roman soldiers who in verses 23 and 24 crucified the one in whom they lived and moved and had their being as if it was just another day at the office. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, nailed him to that cross, and watch him suffer in unspeakable agony, lifting him up to be scoffed at by everybody who came by. Look at what they were doing. They took his garments and divided them into four parts. In that day, clothing was a way of enriching yourself. One part for each soldier, and they also took his tunic, that is his outer coat. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it. We don't want to be destructive or wasteful today. Let's cast lots for it instead to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, Psalm 22 exactly. 
which says they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. Not understanding who Jesus was. Not understanding that he, the God-man, Savior, King, was there by his volition, not theirs. To be exalted as king over God's kingdom on a throne shaped like a cross. Where he not only endured physical suffering that was immense, but spiritual suffering that was immeasurable. For as he became our sin to conquer our sin, the Son of God experienced more hell in that moment than if every human being who ever lived went to hell as we deserved. Why do I say that? Because the fellowship that the eternal Son of God enjoyed with his eternal Father was infinitely perfect, infinitely deep, had no beginning and flowed from the very essence of the triune God. But when the Son of God became sin for us, He became the Holy God's enemy. He became His Father's enemy as their infinite beauty and eternally experienced fellowship was shattered. Which is why Matthew tells us Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, quoting Psalm 22, but also crying out from his anguish of soul as for the first time in eternity, the Son was separated from the Father. But as we've seen so far today, that's why the king voluntarily went to the cross. That's why Jesus came. That's why he made sure that he went to the cross to break his fellowship with the Father. That ours might be restored forever. But to do so, he had to absorb the infinite wrath of God for sins that we, not he, committed. That we might gain a righteousness that he, not we, possessed. Understanding that his work was so perfect that he received the fullness of God's wrath to the the greatest and, and highest degree, that when the hammer of God's wrath fell on Jesus, the hammer of condemnation was pulverized into less than dust on him, leaving no wrath for us. No condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Only the righteousness of Christ that God has imputed to us, assigned to us who are in Him. 
all so that we might enter and enjoy life as it was meant to be in his kingdom, as his kingdom people forever. And you don't have to take my word for it because we have his in verses 28 and following. After assigning the care of his mother, Mary, to the Apostle John, I'm not going to talk a lot about that, but it is amazing, isn't it? Jesus was so others-focused to the glory of God. He was concerned about his mom, wanted to make sure she was okay. And so he gave her to, to, under John's care, the Apostle John's care, and he took her. I think it's a beautiful moment that reveals the heart of our God, revealed in Christ. Verse 28, knowing that all was now finished, he had said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Again, quoting from Psalm 22, but giving us an insight into the utter deprivation and suffering of his soul. All that he endured as he poured out his life for us. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said with a final gasp, It is finished. And then he bowed his head, gave up his spirit, and died. Taking us back to where we began with those three life giving words. It is finished. Oh, how I love those words, don't you? Because those words guarantee that through Jesus Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death, the debt for all my sin, past present and future has been paid in full and Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me so that God sees me just as he sees you if you were in Christ exactly as he sees Jesus let me say it again if you are in Christ today God sees you just as he sees Jesus as fully pleasing to him and forever accepted by Him. And that's true in your best days and your worst days, when you feel like it's true and when you don't. If you belong to Christ this morning, and if you have never trusted Jesus by grace through faith to be your Savior King, I invite you to cry out to Him now. Trust Him. Trust what He did at the cross in becoming sin for you to cancel your sin and grant you His righteousness, thereby making you worthy to enter and enjoy His righteous kingdom forever. If you are in Christ today, because it is finished, no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter how badly you've stumbled or how many times you've done so, God sees you just as he sees Jesus. 
Some of you squirm when I say that. You say, ah, you don't know me. That might be true for some of these better Christians, but you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the addictions that I have dealt with and am still dealing with. You don't know how I treated my spouse or my friend or my roommate even today. You don't know the darkness that is in my soul. Are you saying to me that I can be forgiven even for that sin that I don't even want to talk about, that I've never shared with anybody because it's so dark and disgusting? Are you saying I can be forgiven for that sin that everybody knows about and I continually feel shame over? I'm not saying it. Jesus did when he said, say it with me, it is finished. How can that be? How can it be that he took my sin and gave me his righteousness? How can it be that God is fully pleased with me right now in every moment, even in the midst of my deepest and darkest sin? How is it he can see me like Jesus? It's simple. If you will receive it by faith, your identity in Christ is based on his performance, not yours. And according to Jesus, his performance was perfect and complete. Which means we can rest in him. This is gospel truth. What if you believed that this is true? I wonder how your experience with God would change if you believed that God sees you just as he sees Jesus, that all of your sins, past, present, and future are canceled, and that God has imputed Christ's very righteousness to you. How would your experience with God change? How would you treat yourself differently when you're in the midst of sin if you knew that even in your darkest, darkest moment, even in the midst of your worst sin, because you are his, it is finished. You're deeply loved, fully pleasing, totally accepted and complete in Christ. How would your interactions with others change if you believed those three words were true of you? If you believe that God sees you as he sees Christ, how would that change your interactions with others regardless of how they see you or what they say about you? How would really knowing and believing that it is finished set you free to announce and embody God's kingdom? You have entered by grace through faith. A kingdom that is expanding in and through you, in and through us who are his every day and will one day fill the earth. God, give us the grace to hear those words. It is finished. Lord Jesus, we know that you paid the price, that there's nothing left for us to pay. 
that to pretend we're being humble when we say, well, I really can't approach God because of the badness in me. We're really saying what you did wasn't enough. Jesus, give us grace to believe that what you did was enough. To understand that it is finished. That you poured your life out to death. That you suffered and died. Laying your life down for us that we might truly live in you. Father, I pray for those who are here today who are struggling to believe this. Who are struggling to believe they can be forgiven for that ugly sin. In fact, I just I sense God's Spirit leading me to do this. As you think about that, I want you to, to process. As you think about that sin, you're not sure you can be forgiven for. I want you to imagine those three words written right across. It is finished in the blood of Christ. If you belong to Jesus this morning, you're forgiven. The word forgive means to let go. God has let go. He has canceled that sin whether it happened before you came to Christ or after. Say it over in your mind. It is finished. What Jesus did was enough. To pretend otherwise, to say otherwise, is to contradict the one in whom we live and move and have our being and the one who himself said, it is done. God, give us the grace to believe this today. Give us the grace to live like your kingdom people, purchased by Jesus, the God-man, Savior, King, who lived the perfect life that we don't live, died a sacrificial death, rose again and ascended into heaven and stands before you, Almighty God, as our advocate. Thank you, Father, that in Christ you see us just as you see your Son. Help us to live that way today. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him 